Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, Genesis 3. We'll be reading verses 14 and 15. Let's go to the Lord again, asking for his help in understanding this text. Gracious God, we depend on the Spirit to help us understand the meaning of this text and the narrative that it projects for all of Scripture. Amen. Genesis three fourteen and 15, hear now the word of God. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The world had never seen a trial like this trial. It was a trial not of the year, nor of the decade, nor of our lifetimes, nor of the century. It was the trial of trials, the trial of all the ages. And as we pour into the courtroom, we see three figures. We see a man and a woman, poorly dressed. We look at them and we wonder, what is that for clothing? Are those leaves? It's odd. Are their heads bowed? Why are their heads bowed? Surely the judge before them has gotten the right people. Just look at their faces. They read guilt all over them. We see a third figure, a strange-looking creature. He sits up straight. He's the best one. He's the best-dressed one in the courtroom. His suit is a crisp black and has a shiny veneer that dazzles the viewer's eyes. Not a single hair on his head is out of place. Surely the judge, just looking at him, got the wrong man. And when this attractive foreigner breathes, we wonder if we saw a forked tongue. These three figures now are sitting on the seats of the accused. They are about to hear a word of judgment. And by the looks of the figures, we, being the fine judges ourselves, we know what is to come. The judgment word is sure to come from the judge's bench. But we don't exactly see this judge. There is a brightness that is filling the room. Now, this is not the brightness of the sun that's coming through the windows. Its source is clearly the judge's bench. The shine of the strange character's suit and his face appears to be quite the light, light like the refulgence of an angel even. But upon closer true inspection, we see this is a false light, a false beauty. The light of the judge exposes this lesser light to be no true light at all. And we begin to see the reason the judge is the judge. His holy justice fills every crevice in the courtroom. And we begin to tremble ourselves, because we sense that a doom of woe is moments away. We sense that what is about to be uttered isn't going to affect only those who are sitting. They're only the the lives of the accused. But somehow, 
We are joined to the ones seated about to hear a word of judgment, a word of punishment. And so we struggle to to bear what we are sure to hear. And as the accused wait for this judgment, the the judge reminds all of us in the courtroom what crime was committed. The judge speaks to the man as if the man were the most responsible of the three. He says, the land of the law was clear. You had everything you needed to live in my domain. I gave you everything. You were offered full life and freedom in this land. But you did the one thing that I told you you could not do. You stole from my garden. It was not yours to have. You took it from me. Do you deny this? And sure enough, the man did deny it. Oh, but his face denied him. He says, Judge, you set me up for failure. You gave me this woman. If I had been given someone better to help me, then surely I would have obeyed this one law. Judge retorted, I seem to recall, O oh man, that you were literally singing my praises just yesterday. Or did I imagine that? Enough. You stand condemned, and so he turns to the woman. And what about you? This man is right. You did take from my garden. You did steal from that one tree that was off limits, and you gave it to him. Do you deny it? True, judge. I did take from your garden the one thing you told my husband we couldn't have. But this is the first I'm hearing of it. And to be honest, from my mouth to God's ears, I was led astray. I didn't know, so I plead ignorance. There was a serpent. I don't know where he is now, but he lied to me. How was I to know? The judge responds, deception is no excuse. Enough. You stand condemned. And so he turns to the well-dressed, black-suited, bright one, but silenced him. This third creature, this third figure, the snake, He knew better. He denied the judge's law. He denied the judge's goodwill. And he fed the woman the lie. You will not die if you steal from him. The judge, in fact, doesn't want you to become the judge. He is both afraid of you and he is an evil person. And isn't the tree a good tree after all? The good judge doesn't want you to have it. He's trying to keep that from you. The snake wore the guilt on his face. He would have coiled up himself and slithered into a hole if he could. But the judge's word caught him by the tail. And so the judge opened his mouth with ominous words too hard to hear. The judge looked at the snake. He had no eyes to pity him. And he sentenced him to a lifetime of imprisonment without the possibility of parole. His death sustenance will be the dust of the earth as he slithers on his belly to and fro in chains. What we see of this snake's life then intrigues all of us. How can he be mobile yet chained? And the food that he is apportioned tells us the end from the beginning. But this snake, crafty but too foolish to see, will spend his life always on the move and always in vain. We do not yet see the wisdom of this just judge, but we do see the offspring of the accused. In the judge's holy, just, and entirely wise verdict, 
he allows the snake conjugal rights. In the judge's holy, just, and entirely wise plan, he even puts enmity between the serpentine mass of evil and the woman. And at this, the woman's head perks up. She wonders. She wonders, how is this so? He and I now stand opposed? But we're both condemned. And at this, we all must marvel. And we marvel, we wonder alongside the woman, what is this wisdom? Or is it foolishness? At the same time, we wonder and we shudder anew at at the future of enmity, the future of, of hatred, a future of fighting, seemingly endless fighting. Because what can this text mean? What can these words mean? But that the beast will produce children who will now wage war with the woman. And thus begins a battle between the woman and her offspring and the snake and his. And as we peer into the future and see the woman giving birth to a boy, we see the battle is underway when the snake's offspring murders a child. The sinister snake smiles as a proud dad, approving of his child Cain, of this child's deed of murder. His grin lengthens as his other son, Lamech, kills, or kills a nobody and marries two women. Two women mean two more wombs, which means double the darts to shoot at the woman's offspring. Now he is amassing an army against the woman. He believes that he has made it when the judge affirms that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of man was only evil continually. The snake is a little confused, and he thinks, what is this? Not everyone dies. Eight remain. This man Noah and his wife and his sons and their daughters, they they remain. Well, that's not according to my plan, he he wonders. Well, we'll we'll just get the leader, Noah, we'll just get him drunk, and he'll make a mess of it all. And his offspring were making their father proud as they sought to make a name for themselves by becoming godlike children, even going high above the clouds, having built for themselves a name and a tower of Babel. And despite the judge's attempts at restoring order, the snake was confident that he had the upper hand. He remained unaware of the deep wisdom with which the judge would speak, had spoken. A certain Abraham would be promised to repopulate the land of the judge. But this man would be a liar. A certain Jacob would be called to lead the judge's people. But this man would end up, or he would at least be a deceiver. A certain Moses would be called to rescue the judge's people from slavery. But this man died, and he died being denied the land he was to bring the people into. Oh, what a happy snake we have on our hands. It didn't matter if the judge's people eventually took possession of the land. The snake worked all things out according to his wicked counsel. And so with one ruler after another, with one king after another, the judge's people, the women's children would go astray, would disobey the judge's law, and eventually die. And the deadly icing on the cake was when the judge kicked his people 
out of his own land. This time, in all appearances, been the last time. Off to Assyria, off to Babylon. And so it would go for centuries. A hot battle between the woman's offspring and the snake's. A battle that clearly, in the snake's perspective, had one winner. Oh, the snake kept smiling. And just as the dark cloud threatened to overwhelm the courtroom, the whole world really returned to the judge's words in this verdict. You will bruise the woman's child, but he will bruise your head. Oh, the snake man ignored that, but... An all-important word, to be sure, but the snake had no interest in matters of eternal importance hanging on a single word. And with each apparent victory, the snake would wonder why he hadn't finished off the the woman's children. And he would ask, who is this seed of the woman? Onto how many heels of the woman's children must I latch my fangs? From the courtroom emerged a man whom no one had noticed, but all should have. He began to speak to the judge as if he had some personal authority in doing so. The onlookers soon realized that this man was, in fact, the judge's son. He begins to offer his life to pay the penalty, the just penalty for this man and this woman's crime. He says, I will serve their sentence, judge. Judge responded, it is the death penalty. Are you sure? And at this moment, the, ju- the, the snake spoke, but he spoke this time through the crowd. They all looked at his face and in league with him began to make a commotion whose sound was the highest perversion the mouth has ever uttered. Oh, the judge bellowed order in the court. The people refused to hear this word. They drowned out his voice with their own cries for justice, for the snake. After all, look at him. Was he not the innocent one all along? And who is this son of yours? Where has he been this whole trial? We don't know him. He's not well-dressed. We don't trust him. The crowd became a mob and took the judge's son themselves out of the courtroom. Mob justice, and with it then mob folly, sure seemed to rule the day. Because after unchaining the snake, they let him lead them to put the judge's son to death. And so the son died. The snake smiled and was a very happy snake that day. And he reflected, some word of judgment bruised my head. Okay. But what nobody knew was that before this trial of trials, the judge, the father, and the son had a conversation. The wisdom and justice of which are beyond our knowledge. The judge desired to accomplish two ends. The first was he wanted to show compassion to the accused, and to the rightly charged man and woman, and to their children. Second, he wanted the third accused, the accuser, in fact. He wanted him to come to an end 
once and for all. And the way to accomplish these two goals was to have the son who never broke the law of his father, who always obeyed every single law of the land to offer his life by taking their punishment. It was the father then who invited his son into the courtroom that day to appear before the bench. It was the son who agreed to enter, to come forward, to offer the only remedy to the law's just demand. And something strange began to happen to that smiling snake when the son died that day. His smile started to thin and his spirit to shudder. He looked down and saw that his hands were chained again. Confused, he looked around until he saw a light approaching, a real and true light, a light that showed his light to be pure darkness. From a word too wise for hearers to grasp completely, the sun, you see, has been raised from the dead. And there he was, light and all, blinding and binding the snake man, Satan. He came to the man and the woman, and he took his radiant robe of righteousness, he placed it around them, and brought them back into the courtroom where the judge, the father, sat. And he said to the father, to the judge, clear them of all charges, O judge of all the earth, and do right. And the father says, for your sake, for your righteousness alone, I will do as you have asked. And so he did. In this brief retelling of the story of the father, judge, the son, Humans and evil, you will admit that much more needs to be said. And you would be right. I've only scratched the surface of the story. After all, Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is in the very beginning of Scripture. And much more Scripture is to be written. Much more history is to be told. And it is, at this point, the word of a promise. But this is the word that the Father gave in this verdict. This word is given to Satan. A word to Satan that becomes a word to us. A word for us. For from this word we are assured not only of enmity for a time, but victory for an eternity. Yes, there will be enmity. Yes, there will be hatred. Yes, there will be fighting. As the seed of the woman will wage war against the seed of the serpent. And as the serpent will wage war against the seed of the woman. Seeking every which way to lead astray the children of God from the path back to God. We are definitely assured enmity, but we are assured eternity. We are assured victory as we belong to the true seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. These ways are 
higher than our ways. This wisdom is deeper than ours. This justice is purer. This grace is beyond measure. Recently read someone summarizing the scripture in a single sentence. Kill the dragon, get the girl. We love dragon stories. Many stories of of great battles have dragons. Think of the Hobbit, Smaug. Think of Harry Potter, that snake, Voldemort. And many other stories have that dragon figure all coming from, all basing, all based on this story of that ancient dragon, not eternal dragon, but that old dragon, that wicked serpent that sought to devour the child of the woman. But that child grew in wisdom and stature and favor with the Lord and was attacked by that same devil, was tempted by that same devil. And as Christ is lifted up, as, he's, as his arms are outstretched, as his feet are nailed to the bottom of that cross, there is, at the same time, the snake latched onto the feet, onto the heel, and a nail pierced through that snake's skull, demonstrating once and for all that Christ is victorious over all that is evil. Kill the dragon, get the girl, the church, the bride of Christ, the one for whom Christ died. That's what we see in promise and nutshell form here in Genesis 3. So praise Christ, the true spotless seed of the woman to give her and all us, her children, eternal life. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we know the struggle that exists between the serpent and the saints of God. We thank you that you have defeated the devil through the son's death and resurrection We pray, Lord, that we would see this overarching narrative throughout all of Scripture as we continue to read your word, your precious word. Transform us through it by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.